Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. 
Robert didn't say, great race, fantastic job, unbelievable. He said, I get the effing clock. I stole his lucky cat. Boy, he was some upset with me. We strapped in, we started that race up, we went down that back straightaway and I drilled. I'm thinking, someone's going to pay me $100,000 up front to drive? The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. So, Steve, here's the deal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I now stand at 4,979.5 miles as of this morning. And that leaves me with 20.5 miles to go before I hit 5,000. That means that I will be reaching the 5,000 mile mark this week. I see the light. <laughs> Pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> hey, way to go, Rick. Way We've been go. moving right along. <laughs> Marcus Lamonas says to always trust the process, so that's exactly what I am going to do. I'm not going to change anything up. I'm not going to try to walk longer and try to get to it sooner. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue doing my 4.3 miles a day. That will put me over the top about a mile from where I parked my car. Steve, it's obviously been a long journey doing this. I started out this year with 623 miles to go. Right. And when I tweeted Marcus Lamonis the first time, I've walked about 300 miles since then. You have a goal in mind. You're determined to reach that goal. That's exactly what you're doing. I am looking forward to the payoff. I am looking forward to these scenes being digitized. And then once we get all our ducks in a row and we get permission, we're going to get this scene vault website done. It's going to be online. It's going to be available. It's going to be a beautiful thing. And it is going to be a very, very, very important resource for NASCAR fans and people in the industry. I agree with it completely because as we have done this podcast, we have gone and looked into past issues of scene and brought them to life on this podcast. And there are things in those issues I completely forgot. It was like discovering something brand new. Again, I'm looking forward to getting those miles behind me and finally reaching the mountaintop. So that's going to be on Saturday. I appreciate so much everybody's support, everybody's encouragement. And Marcus Lamonis, if you're out there listening, I've lived up to my end of the bargain. It's your turn. That's right. It's your turn, Marcus. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, in our first segment this week, we have a ton that is packed into the first installment of our interview that we did with Brett Bodine at the North Carolina Auto Racing Hall of Fame in Mooresville. Brett tore on to the NASCAR scene in 1985 with three wins in 13 starts for Rick Hendricks' Bush Series team, and he used that division as a huge stepping stone to Winston Cup. And he made quite a presence in the Bush Series that first time out. Three wins in 13 starts for Hendrick. Not bad at all. And that draws a lot of attention. Brett was then at the center of a completely, totally crazy 1986 Bush Series season that saw points leader Jack Ingram suspended for a couple of races. And then supposedly a... (laughs) 
supposedly a track promoter sawing a light pole in half so there wouldn't be enough light to run the next night's race so the track wouldn't have to pay the purse. Man, I'm telling you, that is strange right there. (laughs) Steve, those were the good old days. That was the wild, (laughs) wild west in the Bush series. (laughs) Brent wound up losing the championship that year to Larry Pearson by seven points. Seven. 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 And there wasn't a playoff system. And oh, we better not go. <laughs> no, no, no. Stop. We're not going to go down that road. <laughs> Stop. Okay. All right. Yes, sir. Moving on. Then Brett got a Winston Cup ride with Bud Moore and a $100,000 personal services contract up front. No, it's a whole new world for Brett. All of a sudden, you go from. Guy struggling to get into racing and making it good in the Bush Series, getting a, a Winston Cup ride, and all of this money. I mean, that's coming a long way in a short time, and it's got to jar the head a little bit. He did get that upfront money, but he and Bud didn't exactly see eye to eye on what kind of chassis that they should run. And being the new kid on the block, Brett probably got the short end of the stick, and it was going to be Bud's way. Yeah, of course. Bud's been around for years and years, and he really isn't going to pay a whole lot of attention to a young upstart. Then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the April 11th, 1985 issue of Grand National Scene. And that issue featured, quote unquote, coverage of Brett's very first Bush Series victory, which came at Martinsville in just the second start of his career. Now, why exactly? Do you call it quote-unquote coverage? (laughs) I'm glad you asked me that. (laughs) The story on Brett's win was the very first story on the first page of the scene on the circuit section. But on this page, there were four stories and two standalone photos crammed onto the page. So the story of Brett's victory was very bare bones. I mean, it couldn't have been... I would say maybe 200 words, maybe. So I think it took somebody of, wow, my caliber to come on and do that Bush Series coverage justice. That's what it was. Okay, I'll agree with right now for the sake of argument. (laughs) Boy, this is going to be a long episode. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that kind of stood out about this issue, it isn't just any old issue of the paper. There's something that stands out about it in particular. Can you tell me what it might be? 1985, huh? Yes. Ah, I got a hunch, but why don't you go ahead and tell me? Go with your hunch. Let's see what your hunch is. First one, color? Nope. Oh, that's not it. Okay. It was Dell Earnhardt Jr.'s very first appearance on the cover of Grand National Scene. Oh, really? Yes. I had forgotten that. He is in victory lane at Bristol with Dale and his sister Kelly. And she who must not be named. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, yeah, I said it. I did not know that. Yeah. The cool thing about the photo is that Dale Jr. is not looking at the camera. He is looking at the trophy standing right next to him. And (laughs) it is taller than he is. It is just an awesome shot. I can see the shot now. Yeah. Yeah. Now, again, Dale Earnhardt did 
win that weekend's Winston Cup race at Bristol, despite the fact that his power steering went out just 100 laps into the race. Matt, it's going to make it a very long and difficult race indeed. I can't imagine running 500 laps there in perfect conditions, much less <laughs> having to wrestle the car around the racetrack like Dale did that day. Well, I charge you, he's one tough customer. This week, we have increased PayPal support from Scott Cole. So, Scott, thank you. You have helped us get to this point, and I appreciate that. I appreciate all of our Patreon supporters. I appreciate all of the people who have helped us out these last couple of years over on PayPal. So thank you guys. Thank y'all so much. From the bottom of my heart, I appreciate it. Support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support QWare, support Brian Kelb. By doing that, you help us put this podcast together. And people do seem to enjoy the podcast and what we're trying to do. And you are a part of the process by helping us. If you can, please support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the same bot podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same bot podcast. Brett, 1985 you had been racing modifieds and you wind up with an opportunity in the Bush series driving for Rick Hendrick. Now, how did that come about? Weren't you working for Jeff's team at the time? So in the, let's regress a a year to 84 and I had just come off of my best year in the modifieds, uh, saved some money up, knew in my heart that if I was going to continue to make a living in motorsports and NASCAR, I was going to have to live in the Carolinas. I was going to have to move down here. Uh, we won the Stafford Track Championship, yeah, you know, paid the most of any track championship on the tour on the, in the series and won a bunch of races. So I saved up a little bit of money. Uh, Jeff had me get in contact with Harry Hyde in the fall of 84, and, and I applied for a job with Harry over the phone. And uh, fortunately, Harry had a, a a guy working in the fab shop, Cheech Gardy, who I had previously worked with at Chassis Dynamics up in Waterbury, Connecticut. So he put in a good word for me. And it wasn't just a, a Jeff mailing it in deal. I had to apply, and, and Harry had to hire me. And so I took the job in the fall of 84, the week of the race at Riverside. And Jeff went out there and won that race uh, driving for Hendrick. So that was a big week, come back and celebrated the win. Uh, they did not have Levi Garrett at the time. Levi Garrett came in 85 as a sponsor. So uh, worked through the winter building cars, prepping for the 85 Cup season. Uh, still had a, a, a deal with my modified team, the uh, Billy Carrazzo Sherry Cup team out of, out of Connecticut, uh, to drive some special events for them, you know. And one of them was the spring Martinsville doubleheader, uh, the Dogwood 500. And uh, so we went up there and did that race. And, you know, and I'm working at, at Hendricks, got a couple days off so I could go practice, qualify. Went up there, and Jeff then was driving for Rick Hendrick with Robert G in the five Levi Garrett late model sportsman or Bush Grand National car. So uh, went up there, everything qualified, and the race day got rained out. The reschedule for the Martinsville race fell on the same weekend as the Cup Bush 
or the Bush weekend, the Cup weekend. So um, Jeff couldn't go. He had to run the Cup race. So he convinced Robert G. and Rick and let me drive the car. They had the tires, you know, all ready to go. Uh, I did sneak out in a practice in that car the week before. The weekend Jeff was there, Jeff said, jump in this thing, go take a practice in it. So I, I got in it and ran really good, you know, was real happy with the car. And son of a gun, went back up there and ran the modified race. And I think I finished third or fourth in the modified. Uh, got out of that, changed my driving uniform, put a Levi Garrett uniform on, jumped in the, in the car and won the race. Won my first race with Rick Hendrick. And at the time, you got to remember... Rick wasn't near the size he is today right, as far right. as his company. Yeah. No, the company was nothing nothing near it, you know. And uh, so, cute side story to this, Robert G., you know, that was really his car, and Rick with him were partners. And I pull up to Victory Lane, and Robert didn't say, great race, fantastic job, unbelievable. He said, I get the effing clock. <laughs> the grandfather clock. And as you know, Steve, yeah. Robert was all about the hardware. That's right. I mean, his house was full of trophies. He has such great drivers drive for him. You sure. Know, local legend Hayward Plyer and Dale and Daryl and just Richmond, Tim and, yeah. and Dick Trickle. And, now, he did not have a clock then? He, no, and that's after, so we're afterwards in tech, and he said, in Robert's southern drawl accent from South Hill, Virginia, I've been here with Daryl Walter, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Bodine, Dick Trickle, and gosh darn if Brett Bodine doesn't win me a clock. <laughs> so, wow. so that was, I mean, what an honor. You know, I, Robert G., he was the man in the Bush series, you know, yeah. with building cars and, and all that. So Monday morning, I go back to work at the shop, and I'm working, and I told Harry, I said, look, I've got to go see Mr. Hendrick uh, when we break for lunch, you know, back then you got paid at the track. You remember standing in the payoff line and you got, you know, so I got the check. It's in my name. I take it down to city Chevrolet where Rick's office was and walk in there and, man, he was ecstatic. You know, this is, it's early in the tenure with Levi Garrett as a sponsor. And I believe that might've been their first race. They won. Uh, I'm not, I don't think Jeff won before that. Yeah. Jeff won in 84. Was it Levi Garrett then? No. Yeah, right, yeah, but yeah. not with Levi Garrett. No, oh, okay, okay, I got you. Okay. Jeff's victory, got, I think, got them Northwestern, the bank. Yes, board. that's yeah. right. That's right. So take the check in there, and he says, well, what are we going to do with this? You know, we hadn't talked about money. or I mean, it was just go ahead and go drive the car, you know. Brett hands it over. <laughs> so I, I give it to Rick, and I, I said, well, you know, look, you don't owe me a dime. It was, a you know, an honor to drive that car, and, you know, it was great, great chance for me and I really appreciate the chance and, and thinking that much of me he said no we're going to treat you just like every other driver 50% on a win 40% everything else I walked out of there and I thought I was rich man I I just I made 4000 I paid $8,000 to win I made $4,000 oh my god you know this is crazy went back to work 5 o'clock comes and Harry comes in the back and says I come up front here Mr. Henry wants to talk to you so uh, I w- went up front, and Rick said, I talked to Levi Garrett today, and they agreed to run you in 12 more races this year 
in the bush car. They'll sponsor it if you drive it. And so get your all your stuff, pack up, and you're going to start working with Robert full-time on the bush cars. Wow. I mean, what a chance. What an off opportunity, you know. You know, timing is everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Timing is everything. And to just step in a ride and win with it, and then to get the opportunity to go full-time working in the Bush Series, which was my short-term goal, you know, was to get established. Right. I mean, that was fantastic. Well, now, after the sign, after you got on with Robert on full-time, wasn't your first race at Bristol, I think, after that, where you finished 12? Or... Or not? No, the, my my very first bush race was Bristol in the fall uh-huh. of '84. Of okay. Yep. A guy just asked me to come up there and drive, you know. And the story to that is it's the same team. I don't know if you, you just recently, it wasn't long ago, they played my win in the in the five car at, at Bristol. Yeah. And and it was like on a rain delay or whatever. And Dave Marcus was driving a. Yeah, car yeah, and, yeah. and got out of the car and quit to, because yeah. they had no one to change tires. Yeah, that's the car I drove, <laughs> and I ran. I knew that yeah. going in, they had nobody change tires. They had no equipment, so we were going to have to run the whole race on the same set of tires, and that's what I did. So that was really my first race at Bristol was in that same car day and qualified fifth with that car. Wow. <laughs> so you talked about all the races that you ran in '85, and you did win another couple of races. Yep. That you're at Rockingham and Bristol. Bristol. Yep. How important was 1985 to your career? Because oh. that's what that was your launch pad. It was huge. I, if I would have stayed in the modifies in Northeast, my next team owner wouldn't have seen me race. Haas Ellington. Mm-hmm. Bud Moore wouldn't have seen me race. Kenny Bernstein wouldn't have seen me race. I established myself as this new guy from the north that came in. Man, he's pretty competitive in the Bush Series. I had uh, I had a lot of great runs on big racetracks, which were so important oh, yeah, to yeah. kind of establish yourself out of that time. The Bush Series being on short tracks, the Hickories and the Orange Counties, and the, you know the, the small tracks around the South. If you could go to Charlotte and Darlington and Rockingham and run well, because that's when the Cup drivers brought their cars and raced against you. If you could be competitive. You were kind of earmarked for maybe a, a cup ride at that time. And, right. and it certainly worked for me because, as you said, Rick, 85 was huge for me. Went to Darlington and ran great. Charlotte, top five finish. I mean, just Rockingham a win and waxed them at Bristol. I mean, just waxed them. Uh, and so it was important, really important for me. And, by the way, I also won this – probably not on any of your records. I won the race of champions that year for the Modifieds at Pocono. That is absolutely the, at the time, wow. was the biggest yeah. modified race of the, of the year in the country. 110 cars showed up for that race. They started 55 cars, and I, I came home the winner. Huh. Well, how did you get hooked up with the Howard Thomas and the double zero car? In the double zero car, well, Jerry Cannon, the crew chief uh, for Sam over there, uh, and I became very good friends when I was running my modified uh, and we met at Martinsville uh, there was a Martinsville event that then that same night there was a race at uh, Caraway Speedway and yeah. we then the next following week was, was one at Wilkesboro back when they used to run up at Wilkesboro and I, Jerry said hey just bring your stuff over to Jay's shop and we can work on it with Jay Hedgecock and, and all them and 
we became good friends. Well, he's the crew chief over there, and he brought it to Howard's attention how well I was running in that five car with no experience. You know, just go to racetracks with never been to and run up front. Um, Jerry put in a good word for me. Mr. Howard, Howard and I talked, and uh, I went to Rick, and he said, Brett, we, we're not equipped to run the full Bush Series. We, we don't really want to. This thing, whole thing was intended just to help our cup drivers to have some races on the weekends that we can do double headers. Um, if you've got a full-time ride, why don't you go? Well, he also said, how about if I get you an uh, Exxon associate sponsorship to take with you? So we, oh yeah, that be. We let me took, think about that. We <laughs> took this Exxon associate sponsorship over to Mr. Thomas, and I had two wonderful years with with Howard Thomas. What a great family, a great man. You want to talk about someone that loves racing, loves the sport? It, you know, back with Monk Tate and, and Sam and owning Caraway Speedway, and in his in his life, he met so much the short track racing right. in the Southeast. Sure did. At the time, as we talked before we started recording, Hendrick Motorsports was not the armada that it is today. But at that time, the double zero was was a hot rod. It was stout. <laughs> yeah. How much pressure did you feel going into that program? Well, uh, it, yeah. Yeah, you're right. It was a hot rod. And it was, i, I got to be honest with you, there was a lot of animosity amongst the regulars on the circuit that I got that ride being a northern modified guy and you know how you didn't just des- you know you didn't deserve that ride you, you hadn't even been here a full season yet and you're driving the the top tier yeah. car and uh it was it was a lot of pressure it was it sure was and to to have to drive back and forth from harrisburg over by the speedway where i was living to thomas to thomas's shop over in Asheboro every day it was quite a drive to work and back uh but, man, it was such an honor, a lot of pressure to go out there and perform. You know, Sam had set the bar pretty high, you know. <laughs> yeah. And the one year that Jimmy drove it was the year that I ran the five uh, Levi Garrett car the, in 85. So went over there and, you know, we start right out of the box, go to Daytona, you know, and never been there, never never turned a wheel at Daytona. <laughs> uh, Mr. Hendrick was nice enough to invite us to the test. He rented the track back then. Teams could rent the speedway and go test. He invited us to, hey, you, you want, I know you haven't ever raced here. Why don't you come down and test with us? So went down there in January of, uh, of 86. When I pulled out on pit road and was rolling off to go out on that racetrack, tears came to my eyes. That, that, was, that was my dream to drive a race car around Daytona. That was unbelievable that here I was. I was going to drive a car around Daytona. Well, 1986 turned out to be a pretty crazy year. Jack was leading the point standings when he got suspended for that deal up at New Asheville. And then a race at Hickory gets canceled because, supposedly, because Patty Moyes damaged the light pole and, and when she crashed in practice and turns out the promoter didn't want to pay the purse or, or whatever went on, it, it got canceled yep. and you lost a chance to gain some ground on Larry. You and Larry, once Jack, you know, fell out of contention for the championship, were left to kind of really slug it out for the championship, and he wound up winning it by just seven points. Seven points. Yeah. Take me through those last few weeks and well, what it was like to be that in that close a battle for the championship. Well, it was, you know, 
it was my first chance at a national title, national series title. And and you're right, we we slugged it out. I mean, you know, and and Larry and I had become quite good friends. Uh, uh, you know, just great family, and could kind of joke around with him a little bit, and, and all that. And, and um, well, you were good friends until you stole his lucky cap. There you go. You remember that? <laughs> <laughs> I stole his lucky cap. Boy, he was some upset with me. <laughs> but I did give it back. I, you know, I was a guy. Because <laughs> I, I, I wanted to beat him fair and square. You know, yeah. I didn't yeah. want to be said, "Oh, I ran out of my luck." You know. <laughs> but it, it really when when. The point championship with three to go tightened up as close as it did, and we had Hickory left, and we had Martinsville left. And uh, Hickory wasn't my best; Martinsville was my best. And I so I knew we had to come out of Hickory with something closer than where we were at, because Larry ran good at both of them also. And uh, said on the pole, Hickory, I was going to start from the best seat in the house on the pole and uh as you said for some reason the race got canceled you know ah. whatever reason i don't know i you know you know it is what it is so i left out of there no gain no loss went to martinsville we did everything we could do sat on the pole and let all the laps and won the race and larry did what he needed to do he runs second i mean there was a point in time where larry and i were beating and banging for the lead, and uh, someone was telling me how David got on the rail and said, Larry, stop it. Just run second to that. Just follow him. Don't, you don't got to beat him. Just follow him. <laughs> but what a great, great season. And in my first full year to say you were second in the Bush Grand National standings, I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah, by all means. Going to all those racetracks I'd never even seen. A couple of them I never heard of. I never heard of Jeff, Jeff Coe. That never didn't didn't even know it existed, you know. So we we had a great year. We really did. Uh, I probably, you know, through rookie mistakes, you know, cost us that championship from the driver's seat. But we still had a great year. And uh, but the biggest thing that came out of that year for me was to go to that banquet and get voted most popular driver. That's right. That's right. Wow. That's right. How does that happen? How does that happen? A farm kid from upstate New York in his first full season in the Bush Grand National Series, which was predominantly at that time, like our whole sport was, a southern-based, southern-followed sport, particularly the Bush Series, to get voted most popular driver. I was floored. I was so honored. Just just unbelievable that I thought to myself, well, I must have done okay for the, for to win this award. 1987, Jeff and Dale Earnhardt spend a little bit of time <laughs> running into each other. <laughs> yeah. Was that something that you ever had a concern about getting caught up in, or did you consider that their deal and you were just going to stay out of it completely? So um, I always said it was their deal, and I'm, I'm going to regress again to 85 because it's Charlotte first time I've raced against Dale uh, he qualified right ahead of me I think he was fourth and I was fifth, sixth or it was third and fifth I can't remember but we're we're at the driver introductions there in the football field at Charlotte 
and I'm standing there, and you know, I'm a nervous wreck. This is my first Charlotte race. My God, I like, you know, this is this is big. <laughs> and someone come up behind me, got my arm, and had it up on behind my back, and I mean, it was hurting me, right? And it was Dale. <laughs> he he started. Yeah, the intimidator started on me. And he said, listen, I know you got more motor than me. So don't you be, if I'm in the way, don't you be running into me down the straightaway. You, you, if I'm in the way, you run into me in the corner. <laughs> I don't like that, that crap being run into down the straightaway. And finally he turned my arm loose. I didn't say a word. I just stood there. We strapped in. We started that race up. And we went down that back straightaway, and I drilled him. <laughs> Halfway down that back straightaway, I just drilled him. Of course, first he, lap? First lap. And you know what come out the window. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know it wasn't telling me I was number one. <laughs> so that's how his and my relationship started. I wasn't – Yeah. I, I saw how he treated everybody else. Right. And I wasn't going to let that happen to me. Wow. Okay. <laughs> you also got your first significant uh, – seat time in a cup car when you drove a horse how did that all come out well it, it was quite unique so my my very first cup race was for rick hendrick at charlotte and in, in the exxon number two car and we uh, the day after the 300 i ran the 600 and uh we prepared the car out of robert g shop and and uh i think we finished 15th or 16th and we won rookie of the race I beat Davey and, and Alan Kowicki for that that uh, added money. I, th- I think it paid a $10,000 bonus to win Rookie of the Race. And that was back when you had to run four laps in qualifying, and there was three rounds of qualifying. Right. Well, we didn't get in until the last round. Wow. I kept messing up. and it didn't get, We got in the last round. We got in that last set, so I started way in the back. I was never so tired in all my life. I mean, it was hot. Those cars didn't have any insulation in them. Oh, my God, it was awful. But finished that thing, and and that's what got Haas's attention. And the fact that we were running good in the Bush Series. Right. You know, Haas, Haas had a part-time team, you know, the, the Bullseye Barbecue Sauce car out of Wilmington. Uh, Rutt Pittman was the crew chief and engine builder right. and uh, leader of the gang, so to speak. And uh, he had Ron Bouchard driving for him. And... Uh, the week before uh, Charlotte, I think, or a couple weeks, the race before Charlotte that they ran was Darlington, and they didn't run very well. So Ronnie and, and Haas parted company, and uh, Haas asked me to drive. And back then, we were coming to the All-Star race in May, and I was eligible for the Open because I had driven the year before for Rick in the Cup Series, so I was an eligible driver. So we went over for the, the All-Star Open race, sat on the pole. Sat on the pole, but I couldn't stay and practice it after qualifying because I had to go run South Boston with a ham car. I mean, as soon as I got out of that car, I didn't even change my uniform. I drove to South Boston because I couldn't afford a helicopter or airplane. I drove to South Boston. Please tell me you got stopped for speeding in your driver's uniform. No, I didn't. I swear I didn't. No. Uh, So I get to South Boston, and they're practicing. Well, they're not going to throw the yellow for, let me get across. And the guy at the gate says, you got to wait till they throw the yellow. I knew if I didn't get across, I wasn't going to get any practice. So I just they took, I ran for it, man. I, I ran for it, had my uniform on, got in the car. He couldn't do anything. Now I'm in the car. 
So I got me 10, 15 laps of practice in and uh, sat on the pole with a double zero car at South Boston. And uh, I think we run fourth or something at South Boston. And uh, while I was up there, Jeff got to practice the one car for me and tried to get it close set up. You know, I, I, again, I'm a rookie. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing that thing. So I think we run third or fourth in the open. I think Harry Gant won the open that year. But anyways, it was, that was a little story there, but no helicopter. <laughs> Drove the old Mustang straight yeah. to South Boston. Yeah. Two and a half hours. <laughs> Brett, that August, you qualify Haas's car fifth at Michigan. Then you fly to Charlotte for a wedding. Then you fly back to Chicago, drive to the racetrack for practice. You run the morning practice at Michigan, then fly to Charlotte for that night's race at Orange County. And Tommy Houston proceeds to drive through your race car. Yeah. Yeah. If he on the on the passenger side, if he'd hit you in the door, in the driver's door, it, it would have been, been a different story. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you remember about that whole weekend? <laughs> Did I, you ever say, "Boy, it looked good on paper." But <laughs> 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 when t- time came time to do it, I was like, "What in the world was I thinking?" And to put so much faith in commercial airlines and scheduling. And, you know, it all worked out. I got to where I was supposed to be without any hitches. The tough one was flying back to Chicago uh, Friday night after the wedding, yeah. getting to Chicago at 11, 30, 12 o'clock, and then having to drive to Michigan by myself. Man, I was struggling. Oh, yeah. I, I walked in the hotel as the crew was walking out to go to the no racetrack. No kidding. You know, because I had to pull over and take naps, man. I, I couldn't do it. And uh, so I said, I'll be there. Don't worry. So I went in there, took a shower and shaved and drove back over to Michigan to the racetrack. And uh, we practiced that morning, morning practice. And again, off, off we went to Orange County. Got in that wreck. I was so sore. And I did fly back to Michigan. Dale Jarrett and I did with a NASCAR plane. Yeah. NASCAR flew us back that night uh, and uh, woke up the next day. And Dale and I were staying in the same hotel and we had underestimated the traffic between Ann Arbor. Yeah. You remember back those I, I days? I tell you, that's, you never underestimate the traffic that at was Michigan. Terrible. Ever. Well, well, well <laughs> we only track with two lane roads. We were, that's right. And we were going to miss the driver's meeting. And, yeah. And I said, Dale, I'm going to the shoulder. I, you know, I was driving. Man, we were off in the shoulder, passing on the wrong side. We were doing everything. People were cussing at us, you know, but we got there and uh, ran the race, you know. That was that was uh, life's experience of having to do all that with commercial. At what point did Bud Moore come into the picture, and what was it like to drive for him, especially as a young driver? Well, an old teamer. Yeah, you're right, Steve. I, I, you know, if you do your history on Bud Moore, he does not take young drivers. Didn't take young drivers. It was the uh, Saturday night after. The Charlotte race, the yeah. Bush race at Charlotte, I drove the double zero car. And uh, there had been some rumors around the garage. You and Barney Hall were good at kind of <laughs> keeping people informed of what was going on and what seats were available. And you guys used to do a really good job. And, and uh, uh, kind of knew Bud was looking at me, you know, uh, and uh, got a phone call Saturday after the Bush race. And it was Greg Moore and said, Daddy, Daddy'd like to talk to you. 
You know, he always called him daddy. And <laughs> always. Always. And uh, I said, great, Greg, when, when do you want to do it? He said, how about tomorrow at the track? I said, sure. So uh, we got together and we we met uh, met there at the Speedway. And he said, I got, a, I got a sponsor. Can't tell you who it is right now, but you'll be proud to drive for him. And uh, we've discussed, and you're our high on our list. And, uh, you know, I running the Bush Series, you know, you were, you're not making much money. Mr. Thomas treated me well, don't get me wrong. But you're, you're just, if you're running up front, you're just scratching something together, you yeah. know. It, he said, uh, we'll pay you uh, 40% of the purse in a $100,000 personal service contract. My mouth, <laughs> I, my jaw dropped. Oh. Are you kidding me? I'm thinking, myself, someone's going to pay me $100,000 up front to drive plus 40% of the purse? I was just expecting a percentage. I didn't yeah. Didn't know I was going to get a sign-in bonus or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it didn't take me long to say yes. Yeah, I'll do it. I, I like, told him as soon as I could talk again, <laughs> I told him I would take it. So there you go. That's how we got together, and uh, what, a, what an honor to drive for Bud. Uh, you know, just meant so much to our country yeah. for his service and so much to our sport for the way he conducted his team and ran his team and the top drivers he had drive for him and the wins and and just what Bud Moore Engineering stood for, uh, you know, put it right there with the Petties and, and the Pearsons, you know, right. and Bud Moore. I mean, they were three of the pillars of our sport for – team owners and uh, what a what a great honor wasn't he though i don't even know a word to use it's not difficult but uh, he had his ways oh yeah so <laughs> for sure but that bit was i think beneficial to you because hadn't been around long enough to challenge his ideas he 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 definitely that team was run bud's way mm -hmm. there was no you know it wasn't run by committee let me tell you that right now it was bud moore's way and, and, Steve, you're so right. I mean, he helped me understand tracks mm -hmm. before I ever went to him, you know. Uh, the one good thing he, he put in his budget was we tested. And we got to test quite a bit. And, that re you know, he knew he needed, it was going to have to be that way. And, and it really, really helped me a lot to just go to a racetrack with Bud Moore and Doug Williams at the time was kind of the named the crew chief, but it was Bud Moore was the crew chief. Donnie Wingo uh, was a mechanic on the team, and of course Greg and uh, his brother Daryl were the engine guys. Uh, but to go there in a relaxed atmosphere, and I could go out on the racetrack and run, and then Bud would would, would critique me and help me, and and you know my learning curve was pretty quick because of that and and the other thing that you know people don't know know this but he, he would try to go test with the Elliots if the Elliots were going to go test somewhere we would go and Bill didn't necessarily come over and help me but having him on the racetrack with nobody else there so I could hear the let off points and watch the groove that was huge for me you know mm -hmm. really big so it, it was it was really 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 good experience for me to be with Bud and, and his team and his his people. The first half of that season, 
there was one stretch where you did blow some engines, and I think there were uh, there was one stretch where you did four straight races and you were blowing engines. And as much as it meant to drive for Bud, you had also been enjoying a lot of success in the Bush Series. Was it disappointing? Was it discouraging? Was it frustrating? Or were you basically content to be at the cup level at that point? Yes. <laughs> All of that. <laughs> okay. You know, once you're the, you know, I came out of the Modifieds and I was the big fish in the little pond. And I knew there was going to be a time in my career with, if I continued on to the cup level, I was going to be the little fish in the big pond. Yeah. And, and I had that in my head. But as far as being competitive, it even over exceeded my expectations where I won. We were fairly competitive. Like we could qualify well and we could, we could short run well, but we had, we had a lot of engine problems. It was in, 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 you know, the first couple you, but man, it was repetitive. And then if, if we didn't fall out because of an engine problem, we didn't run well because of an engine problem, you know? So it was, it was pretty discouraging and, and, you know, I was not only concerned because we weren't. I was concerned for Bud. I mean, what? I mean, they did their own stuff. You know, they got to get their stuff. Yeah. He had to take a little bit of that Bud Moore stubbornness and pride away and look for some help. And that help came in the form of Jack Roush. Mm-hmm. Jack finally got us back okay. doing things yeah. right doing things right and that was very important because then i think you noticed towards the end of the season we didn't fall out because engine problems right, right you know things things straightened out the one thing that was going on though that bud was stubborn about was he was banjo matthews through and through you know and we were on those running rear steer cars the front steer car was the new fast thing you could get the engines lower you could it just had so much going more going for it and bud would not come off that rear steer car and it it, it, that car that chassis front suspension did not match up well to the radial tire that was being introduced at the time Uh, it just it was not appropriate we were behind the times we finally got our engine stuff squared away but we were behind the times on chassis right. and bud would not even consider buying a front steer car and and to be honest with you that's what drove me away from bud Moore uh, the the following year and yeah. in in 89 i mean we struggled because we could not get our cars to to handle consistently we had a few tracks that we were pretty good at but man and you know it, it just, I had to do it. I had to leave. I didn't want to, but I had to leave because he was being yeah. pretty stubborn. I, I think, thankfully, I did leave because he bought Morgan some front steer cars. You know, Morgan followed me. Right. It, it bud more, and they bought front steer cars. Hello, Scene Ball Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. I'm so glad that racing is back. It's nice to see it on TV. And of course, it's been nice to continue to be able to listen to the Scene Ball Podcast with Rick and Steve and all their guests. And of course, they just hit the milestone 100th podcast. And I'm so proud of what Rick and Steve have been able to do with the Scene Ball Podcast in preserving the history of this great sport. 
There's a lot of time and effort that goes into everything that happens at the Scene Vault Podcast and at QWare, we are proud to be a part of it. We also know that it takes a lot of time and effort to take care of the places where you work. And we want you to check out QWare and see what we can do when it comes to facility maintenance. We are the most powerful, most simple to use computerized maintenance management system on the planet. So check us out at QWareCMMS.com and see what we can do for your facility maintenance team in helping to keep your campus and your facility up and running. Now let's get back to the podcast. Just listen to Brett Bodine's results in Rick Hendricks' Bush Series car in 1985, his very first year in that division. He was 12th at Bristol. He won at Martinsville. He was fourth at South Boston and Charlotte. He was third at South Boston again just a few weeks later. He was second at Hickory, 25th at IRP due to his engine letting go. He was ninth at Hickory. He won at Bristol. He was eighth at Darlington, ninth at Charlotte. Then he won again at Rockingham, and then he finished 27th at Martinsville in the season finale. Steve, that's 10 top 10 finishes, seven top fives, and three wins in 13 starts that year. Now, there's taking advantage of an opportunity, (laughs) but Brent jumped on the chance to break into the sport with Rick Hendrick with both feet and absolutely did exactly what he needed to do. Oh, absolutely. Um, His record with Rick, Rick Hendrick in those 13 races was certainly enough to make him a stalwart on the Bush series at that time. And yeah, that was a tremendous way to break into this board. I loved Brett's story about pulling into victory lane at Martinsville and Robert G telling him that he was getting the effing clock <laughs> in no uncertain terms. Brett might've been willing the car, but it was going to be Robert G turning wrenches and taking the trophy home. That's right. As a grandfather clock, and the grandfather clock tradition was started by Claire Earls, the owner of Marnival Speedway, years before. Clay decided that he wanted a winner at his track to have something special, not just another bowl or another regular trophy. He wanted something special. So he negotiated with a local furniture manufacturer who had grandfather clocks, and he thought that would be a neat, neat thing to do. So he started giving away the grandfather clocks to winners at Martinsville Speedway, and it caught on big time. I mean, every driver wanted that grandfather clock. And some of them, like Richard Petty, had 15 or 16 (laughs) over the years. Steve, how long ago was that? Do you know when he gave away the first one? No, I don't really know. I'm pretty sure it was... uh, well, at least in the early 70s, because when I got there, he was giving away grandfather clocks. Let's just go ahead and say that the grandfather clock is pretty much the trophy in NASCAR. Yeah, I would say Besides that. Martinsville, what would be your favorite NASCAR trophy? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I always thought that Richmond presenting a plaque to the winner in the shape of the state of Virginia was pretty cool. <laughs> I thought that was neat. Not according to Kyle Petty. <laughs> I wanted a trophy, and I got a plaque. <laughs> well, it was a different kind of a plaque. Come on. 
As soon as you said that, I, that just popped into my brain. Before Nashville Speedway went off the circuit, the trophy that they gave away was a Sam Bass-designed guitar. Yes, that's right. So that was probably just about the coolest trophy other than Martinsville's grandfather clock. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the guitar would have given the grandfather clock a run for its money as the coolest in NASCAR. Both of them were unique. Let's put it that way. And I did not have a stroke when Kyle Busch smashed his in victory lane. (laughs) I didn't have a problem at all with that whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe even better than the trophy, Rick Hendricks split the winner's purse with Brett, 50-50. And the winner's share that day was $9,150. So Brett walked out of Rick Hendricks' office that day with a cool $4,575. I'm rich! (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, back then for a young guy starting out, not bad money at all. Not only that, but later that same day, Robert G. finds Brett in the shop and tells him that Rick wants to see him in his office again. And so Brett goes trudging up to Rick's office and Rick says that he has talked to Levi Garrett, who was sponsoring Jeff's Winston Cup ride at the time. And they have agreed to sponsor Brett, not for the full season, but in a total of 12 more Bush Series races the rest of that year. Hey, racing lives off sponsorship and whatever you can get is a good thing. Again, what he did with that opportunity was just out of this world. And then in 1986, he moved over to the double zero Thomas brothers country ham car. And at that time, Steve, as we mentioned to Brett, that was the ride. Yeah, absolutely. Sam Ard had done wonders in the car. And then after Sam got hurt, Jimmy Hensley took over in 1985 and then 1986, Brett got the ride. And according to him, there was some animosity amongst some of the regulars on the tour that he got that ride. Now, Steve, why is that, do you think? Because he was the new kid, not from around these parts, okay? They didn't feel like he had really spent enough time on the Bush Series to earn that double zero car. But look what he did in the Hendrick car. You know, he was a superstar in that Hendrick car, and I think he definitely earned it. Thomas Brothers ride, in my opinion. But again, when you're a kid coming from another part of the country, it's going to be some tough going for you in earning the uh, respect of the hardcore Bush Series drivers. The only way that I can think of to describe the 1986 Bush Series season as a whole (laughs) would be bizarre. September the 14th, Jack Ingram ran a late model race at New Asheville very close to his home there. And he got into a wreck with Ronnie Presley, who was the cousin of Robert Presley, who went on to win that race. Jack turned his car around and was going the wrong way on the racetrack. He claims that he couldn't see Presley, and they run into each other head on. Presley was hurt with strained chest muscles, a slight concussion, and an injured left wrist. And then To make matters worse, Jack proceeds to get into it with the police. Jack said in second to none 
the police officers who were moonlighting for the speedway proceeded to beat me up, broke some ribs, drug me all over that speedway, handcuffed. They lifted me plumb up off the ground with my hands behind me. It still makes me hurt. And at the time, Jack led Brett for the Bush Series Championship by 246 points and Larry Pearson by 265 with six races to go. The championship was over. For all intents and purposes, the championship had been decided. But Jack wound up getting suspended for two races, and that was two Bush Series races. And that basically doomed his chances for the championship. Now, I know Jack pretty well, have for a long time, but I don't pretend to know him like you knew him when you were covering the Bush Series. I never suspected Jack to have that kind of retaliatory mood to, you know, get involved with uh, Ronnie Presley the way he did. And I just don't understand what the, what the cops were thinking. Was Jack battling them or something? I just don't see that being in his nature. Am I wrong? I'm going to be honest with you. Could I see Jack being angry about a racing incident? Certainly I could. But I believe that he was smarter than that because this was, quote, unquote, just a late model stock race that he was running just for fun, just for an extra paycheck. And so there wasn't a lot at stake in that race. And so I do think that Jack was smarter than that to retaliate. Now, what happened with the police? I don't know. I wasn't there that day. But it did cost him two races, and it did cost him the 1986 Bush Series Championship. And when I did second to none, he was still ticked off about it, big time. I just don't see Jack involved in that kind of situation, but who knows? Spur the moment, you never know. Then, on October the 10th at Hickory, Brett qualified on the pole for the next day's race, but then Patty Moise crashed during a practice session, and she damaged a light pole. Evidently, the light pole was not destroyed, and it could have been repaired, and they could have ran the next night's race. That was one thing, but then there was this rumor that still exists to this day that said that the track promoter didn't have the money to pay the purse for the race and supposedly was actually caught (laughs) trying to solve the damaged light pole in half so there wouldn't be enough light to run the next night's race. (laughs) Well, I've heard of things like this before. I've heard of promoters uh, scooting away from the race while it's going on with the money in their hands and things like that, but... This light bulb is, that's brand new there. Then the day of the race, there is a light mist falling, and the race is not postponed, but canceled outright. That being said, the scheduled late model stock race for Hickory went off as planned, and a car owned by the track promoter evidently won. <laughs> the plot thickens. <laughs> oh, <me. laughs> so at this point on the schedule, after the Hickory cancellation, there was Rockingham, then the finale in Martinsville, which Brett won and Larry finished second. And Larry won the championship. As we said in the intro, Larry won the championship by seven stinking points. Boy, that had to be frustrating for Brett. There was a bright side. 
at least in Brett's opinion, Brett was voted the most popular driver that year. And just from the emotion in his voice when he talked about it, you could tell that it meant a lot to him. He was smiling very wide when he was talking about it. No question about that. I think it had to be the high point of his career at that time. Although I think winning the championship would have been something <laughs> much better for him. But, you know, most popular driver when he just came on the circuit two years ago, a year ago, come on, that's pretty good. Well, I think it meant a lot to him for the very reasons that you mentioned that some of the regulars on the tour had some animosity towards him. Right, right. Because he was an outsider. He was from the North. He was a Yankee. And here he was in what was then a predominantly Southeastern sport. And he won the most popular driver award. Then, Steve, what did you think of Brett's story about Dell Earnhardt? where Dale came to him right before Brett's first Charlotte race and told him not to be running into him on the straightaway. That's the intimidator at work <laughs> coming up and making his presence known in no uncertain terms to the new guy. Well, I loved Brett's response because according to Brett, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> according to Brett, Brett responded by going out and absolutely drilling Dale on the straightaway on the very first lap of the race. <laughs> I tell you what, I think that is a cool move by Brett to let the intimidator know, I'm not going to back away from you. You absolutely could not allow yourself to be intimidated by the intimidator. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Brett got his very first full-time Winston Cup ride with Bud Moore in 1988. And as I mentioned, when we talked to Brett, they had a ton of engine trouble. But not only that, Bud was also dead set on running a rear steer car from Banjo Matthews, and Brett wanted a front steer car. Now, I'm not a mechanic. I'm not an engineer, so I don't personally know what the difference would be. Well, he wasn't going to get it because Bud and Banjo go back a long way uh, working together. And of course, Bud, with his longtime experience with rear steer cars, could not see himself going any other way, even though front steer was the way to go at that time and has been proven on the track. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And this was another huge week for Brian on Instagram and Twitter. I couldn't even begin to list all the amazing stuff that he posted this week. Just do yourself a favor and go over there and check it out because it is some absolutely amazing stuff, Steve. Every time I go over there and check out that site, I say to myself, where does this guy get this stuff? <laughs> I've never seen it. Again, do yourself a favor and take a trip down memory lane you won't regret it, and you will see some stuff that you will just absolutely have to pick up. Follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com.
what would it be like to drive a race car without power steering? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> I can't even think of driving my own car without power steering. <laughs> I do think it's important to remember that at that point, power steering was a relatively new thing in NASCAR. So for years, drivers had been racing without it. But once you get used to it, it's awfully hard to go back to the old school way of wrestling with that steering wheel lap after lap. Now, whatever the case might be, 400 laps at Bristol without power steering is a long time. Oh, gosh, yes. And I think, if I'm correct, I believe it's about 1982, around there, power steering came into NASCAR through Jeff Bodine. He's the one that brought it in. And when power steering was universal, yes, it was much easier to wrestle those cars around the track, especially a place like Bristol. But I was also told that when that power steering goes out, it doesn't just go back to old time steering like it used to be. It's worse because of power steering being out. It simply does not go back the way it used to be. It's even harder to steer that car around. So I can't imagine how Dale was able to do that. But Dale said in this issue, I've never driven a car which had lost the power steering, and I hope I never have to do it again. It was like having someone in the car holding the wheel, trying to keep you from turning it. You had to fight all the time. I don't know what happened, but fortunately, the whole thing didn't give out. I had to pull on the wheel so much, my right hand and arm went to sleep. When I could, I tried to steer with one hand so I could work my right arm and try to get it to recover a little bit. Now, here's another quote that I thought was very interesting. If the car hadn't handled so good, even with the power steering gone, I would have never finished the race. But it did get to hurting me so bad that I radioed Richard Childress and told him to find someone just in case I gave out or something. Now, Steve, do you know who they got to stand by without looking at the notes? (laughs) (laughs) To be honest with you, no. Now I looked at the notes, I remember, but I didn't know before. Daryl Waltrip. (laughs) How about that? DW had fallen out of the race after being involved in a couple of different accidents. But just the image of Daryl Waltrip driving Dell Earnhardt's car, that would have been pretty cool to see. Well, I'll tell you what, a good choice because Daryl was with Junior Johnson at that time. And Daryl and Junior were just absolutely terrific on all the short tracks. From Nashville to Bristol to Martinsville to Richmond, they were really at their game at those tracks. So that would have been a very good choice. That was one aspect of this race. But let's just say that it would have been a great day to be in the infield and be a sheet metal collector. (laughs) (laughs) There were 15 cautions for a total of 90 laps involving 20 of the 30 cars that started that race. Well, with the high bank Bristol track in the configuration it was back then, this is not highly unusual. A few months ago, somebody tweeted a photo of Phil Parsons running to hand Bobby Allison the steering wheel. And when that photo was tweeted, people wanted to know the backstory. So then the question became, well, what track is it? Why is Phil Parsons in a hurry? Why did Bobby need the steering wheel in the first place? And Steve, I found the answer 
in this issue. Bobby Allison broke a steering wheel on lap 131, and he popped the turn two wall. And Bobby said in one of the sidebars, it was one of those old Ford steering wheels, and I guess it wasn't good enough. I grabbed the nub to keep steering, and the power steering helped a bit. But I would have hated to go more than half a lap like that. Steve, he was trying to steer the race car. With the nub. With the nub. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) Now that is hardcore. I don't care who you are. That's hardcore. (laughs) Notice one thing, Rick, though. Power steering was relatively new, okay? And the power steering did go out on some drivers more than once. Now, the steering wheel, that was a different situation. But steering wheels did break from time to time. You'll notice you don't see that today at all. That's how far the technology has come. Not at all. Bobby Allison pulled into the pits where he got that replacement wheel from Phil Parsons, who had fallen out of the race in one of the accidents. Bobby finished the race in 13th place, 24 laps down. As bad as it must have been to try to steer the car with the nub of the steering wheel, it did earn Bobby a $500 bonus <laughs> for the Timex Timeless Move of the Race Award. Well, it might not have been much money, but that was the Timeless Move of the Race to steer a car one-handed by the column. Unbelievable. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Herb Nabb serving as a consultant for Travis Carter and Harry Gann at Bristol. And this time around, I thought it was interesting that Travis and Harry had lined up Emmanuel Zervakis to help out. Long-time driver and very good on the short tracks. After hanging up his helmet as a driver, Emmanuel started building a lot of cars and selling parts, especially in the late model sportsman division, what came to be known as the Bush Series. He started with Harry's team at Richmond that year, where Harry finished fifth, and then second a week later at Richmond. And at Bristol, again, Harry sat on the pole, but the results weren't as good as they had been with Herb Nabb on board. That race, I think he'd finished fifth or sixth, but here at Bristol, Harry sat on the pole but was involved in the race's second caution, just 37 laps into the event. Emmanuel said in this story, we're using my theories instead of the theories they are used to, and I hope we don't fall on our face. It's getting to the point in racing where the crew chief can't think of everything. This is a true team effort. Travis Carter and I get along well, and we haven't bucked heads. I think my thinking is 180 degrees off from anybody else's, but Travis listens. If I told some of the other teams what I thought, they'd probably laugh at me. But I'm not saying I'm right. I'm saying you have to prove it. Well, he's right when he says crew chiefs at that time were finding that preparing for a race and utilizing strategy was going to be a big, big, tough job. There was just more competitive teams, more ways to be competitive, and they couldn't deal with all of it. Sometimes they had to make changes to deal with it, and that took the help of another person like Emmanuel. There's another feature story on Cliff Timberman, who was celebrating his 18th year as a tire buster. Now, at one point, Steve, I was doing a lot of freelance work for NASCAR.com, and as part of that deal, I wound up doing a story on Goodyear's tire busters for NASCAR.com, And those guys 
are the hardest working people in NASCAR. I've noticed at every garage area I go through, there's always a Goodyear area or a Goodyear room where those guys work. The sound of tire busting is something, and it's just, a, you know how that sound is, Rick. Oh, yeah. You hear that all day. It never ceases from the time you arrive to the time you leave. That place where Goodyear's guys are is always busy. And they do it no matter what the weather is. I sure. mean, it's just crazy the conditions that they work in. And they, again, they are absolutely some of the hardest working people in racing. I honestly can't remember what track it was at. I want to think it was Charlotte, but I don't know because all you see as a tire buster is that rig in front of you and the tent that's overhead. And that's about it. So honestly and truly, I think it was at Charlotte, but I wouldn't bet on it. That's how focused their job is. You see your one little area and that's it. You're right. And Charlotte does have a good sized area for the tire busters. And that's one place that I do remember walking past and sometimes just stopping to watch them work. And you could do that at any time of the day. On page 26 of this 40-page issue was buried <laughs> <laughs> the story of Brett Bodine's Bush late model sportsman win. It was shoehorned again onto the top left corner of the page. A wreck involving leaders, Jimmy Hensley, Jack Ingram, and Dell Jarrett took them out of contention. Brett went on to post the win, and he said in this story, I've always felt through my career that my style of driving was suited for the sportsman cars. I've been successful in my modified career, but I feel I can do better driving the sportsman cars. We just went to Martinsville to do the best we could. I never expected to win in my second time out, though it felt great. Obviously, the story being shoehorned into the scene on the circuit page left a need for scene, and we realized before long we had to have extensive Bush series coverage found one way or the other. I can't remember the guy's name. But... <laughs> I don't know that you meant for me to take it as far as what I did, but Hey, I'm like a dog on a bone, man. <laughs> Steve, the story right below the story of Brett's win concerned the recent passing of Horst Fisher. Now tell our listeners who Horst Fisher was. Horst Fisher was the uh, truck driver for Petty Enterprises. He was a great guy, a lot of fun and everything. He was from Germany. He was full-blooded German. He was a member of the Hitler Youth. He freely admitted that, but he very wisely found his way out of Germany. His dad was actually in the German Army during World War II. After the war, with the help of an American Army officer, Horst immigrated to the U.S. and eventually became a long-distance truck driver in North Carolina, and he was doing the run between Burlington and New York, and he did that run for 22 years. Incredible. How about that? That's a lot of miles. Now, when that company went out of business, he joined Petty Enterprises as its truck driver and pit crew member. Steve, there's also something else that's quite significant about Horst Fisher. What was it? Well, there were many things that I thought were significant about him, but why don't you tell us? Your story on Horst Fisher appeared in the June 1st, 1978 issue of Grand National Scene. 
I wasn't even there full time yet. That was the very first story of yours that ever appeared in Grand National Scene. Really? I've forgotten that. And yes. An old horse fisher, huh? <laughs> <laughs> in your story, he did address his youth and his days going up in Germany during the war. And Horse said in your story, I can remember the war very well. I was a member of the Hitler Youth. I didn't have much choice because every young person was a member. I can also remember all the bombings and air raids. And the only thing I said was, I want to get out of here. Now, Steve, this was a different time. This was a different place. And when he was working in NASCAR, he picked up a nickname. (laughs) And his nickname was Kraut. Okay. (laughs) And he didn't care one bit. Horse addressed his nickname in your story. He said, yeah, they do that because they are kidding me all the time. They can't pronounce Horst. I tell them it's just horse with a T on the end, but they still can't get it right. So I tell them it just takes education. So evidently Horst could give as well as he got. Dealing with the English language and the Southern dialect, I just can't imagine how he must have felt like a fish out of water being in the South. He said, when I studied English, I found out I could understand it a lot better than I could speak it. So I hesitated to talk much. It was really difficult to understand all the Southern slang I heard. I couldn't figure out words like y'all and yaint and yonder. (laughs) It took me about two or three years to figure it out, and I still have trouble. (laughs) You want to have some fun. Back then, if you could stand and listen to a conversation between Richard Pettit, and you know how he talks, and Horst (laughs) Fisher, you would be laughing like crazy. (laughs) Surely they both needed interpreters. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, also, there was a news item in the scene on the circuit section where Dave Marcus was in the process of moving into a brand new shop in the mountains of North Carolina. Although his old shop was less than a mile from his home in Avery's Creek, it was far from ideal. According to the story, it had grown dark, cold, grimy, and gloomy with age. The Charlotte Motor Speedway media tour visited that shop in 1984. And again, according to the story, people were pretty shocked at what they found. Yeah, it was uh, quite, quite different from the shops we had seen earlier. Now, the shops of today far outstrips what the top shops then looked like. But to see Dave's shop was like walking into a cave. Just inside the entrance, there was a wide, heavy sheet of plastic with another sheet forming a makeshift ceiling. And according to Dave, that was the only way that they could keep heat in the place. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Listen to this. Dave's old shop was 1,600 square feet, while the new one that he was moving into topped out at about 6,000 square feet. Now, that's still small by today's standards. Right. But this new shop was just over the ridge from Banjo Matthews' place, and building the new shop was a group effort. Marcus and crew member Frank, Doc Graham, and others pitched in to complete the shop. And Dave said in this story, not having a proper shop won't be an excuse anymore. In fact, I think the only thing holding us back is not having the good sponsorship that some of the other teams do. I blame part of that on the old building. 
in the past, potential sponsors would drop by, take a look, and seldom be heard from again. Now we've got something nice and functional to show them. He's exactly right, because at his old shop, and I'm not a sponsor by any stretch of imagination, I didn't want to go back there. I really said, this is terrible. And I think Dave knew it. Obviously, he knew it. And Steve, it was at that point where Dave did start getting a little bit bigger sponsorship from different companies. That's correct. He had Lifebuoy. He had Olive Garden. He had Realtree. And obviously, that wasn't the big dollar sponsorships that some of the other teams were getting, but it was better than what Dave had been getting in the past. So maybe that shop did make a difference. Finally, there was an item about the upcoming Darlington race where Bill Elliott remembered his third place finish in the 1984 spring race at Darlington. And the story revolved around an incident at the end of that race. Bill finished third at Darlington in that event. And that doesn't sound like any big deal, but here's the rest of the story. The flywheel in Bill's car disintegrated as he was coming off turn four and it came to a stop a hundred yards or so from the finish line. I had never seen anything like that before. Bill said in this story, I've never had a car just die like that. Not on the last lap. I didn't know what to do at first. I knew the lap wouldn't count, but then I looked over at the fans and they were yelling like they wanted me to push. So I pushed. So Bill got out of his car and pushed it across the finish line. Now that lap didn't count, of course, but he was still credited with the third place finish behind race winner, Darrell Waltrip and second place, Terry Labonte. But he was credited with finishing third ahead of Kel Yarbrough, Dell Earnhardt and Harry Gant, who took fourth through sixth, all one lap down, just like Bill. Now I'm not sure how Bill could have pushed his car across the finish line and still finish ahead of Kel, Dell and Harry. But, Steve, I guess that was scoring back in those days. Well, that's the way we took it because those of us who are covering the race couldn't quite understand that either. But it was a bizarre finish because there's Bill. He pushes his car across the finish line after it came to a dead stop with a broken flywheel. That was the most remarkable thing. I had never seen that. Hi, this is Paul Andrews, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, as it stands right now, I have 5,020.5 miles to go before I hit 10,000 lifetime miles. Way to go, Rick. (laughs) No, 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 no. We're not starting that countdown. I promise (laughs) you that. Uh, I'm going to have to recover from 5,000 miles first. So no, we're not going to be giving weekly updates. But Steve, again, I just thank everybody out there who have tweeted me and wished me well. Don't make any mistake about it. Some of the notes of encouragement that I have gotten have meant the absolute world to me. And some of them have been very important in helping me make that next step. Keep digging. That's all we can do. Keep digging. Well, well, Rick, now that you're about to approach 5,000 miles and you don't want to talk about going another 5,000 miles, what in the world are we going to talk about at the end of the shows now? 
I don't have any idea, man. <laughs> you got any recipes or something? <laughs> now, at some point, I am going to call you Todd or Jeff, and, and I'm and, sure that's and something I'll say, that you. Okay, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> he'd go down when he was mad. He had to go through the whole. Oh, absolutely. Know, my father said that. When we've got somebody else in the house, and Adam and Jesse have one of their buddies, and Gene is there, I mean, I, I call the roll. Adam, Jesse, Zach, Otis. You got them all. Whoever. (laughs) 